Our text this morning from John chapter 13, the gospel lesson that was just read. It's a traditional text. It's, it's normally used on Maundy Thursday. That is the day before Good Friday. Maundy, the Latin word for commandment. Thus, commandment Thursday. And the text is used then because on that night, the night in which our Lord was betrayed, he gave the disciples a new commandment. You can see that at the end of our reading. It's in verse 34. A new command I give you, Jesus says, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. So this text here in John 13 is the beginning of five of the most majestic chapters in all of Scripture. John's Gospel, chapters 13 through 17, often referred to as the Upper Room Discourse or our Lord's Farewell Discourse. Right? There's a certain unique poignancy here because Jesus is about to die and these are his last words. Something of a last will and testament to his disciples. The 19th century Scottish minister, a man named Alexander McLaren, spoke of Christ's dignity and his tenderness shining forth most brightly here in these chapters. He said this, nowhere else, he said, is his speech at once so simple and so deep. Nowhere else have we the heart of God so unveiled to us. On no other page of the Bible, he says, have so many eyes filled with tears had their tears dried. The immortal words which Christ spoke in that upper chamber are his highest self-revelation in speech. It is the beginning of these words to which we turn today in John 13. So I'll make two simple points. They're on the back inside page of your bulletin. The foot washing and the new command. Foot washing and the new command. So first, the foot washing. Everyone knows the story. John tells us that Jesus is our. Now, we looked at this last week. This means the hour of the cross. The hour of his passion, the hour which has been deferred until now, his hour has come. And we're told in verse 1, it's time for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Jesus loved his own. He loves all people, but this chapter is focused on his love for his disciples. He loved his own and he loved them, the text says, absolutely, or to the end, or in some translations, to the uttermost. And as he goes about these discourses, I'm sure you've noticed this if you've read through this part of John's Gospel. There is about our Lord here, set against the impending darkness and the violence and the chaos, something of an otherworldly radiance. You look at verse 3, it says, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. This is the source of what has been called Christ's sovereign serenity in the eye of the storm. He's not, he doesn't have a detached kind of indifference, 
but he has a deep kind of serenity in the valley of the shadow of death. And the text says that he knew that he had come from God and that he was going to God. This is the deeper root right here of Jesus' otherworldly radiance. He knew that he had come from God and that he was returning to God. He knew his origin and he knew his destiny. And those things are crucial in living in authentic, robust human life. They account in that simple phrase, he knew he came from God, he knew he was going to God. That accounts for Jesus' serenity, his stability, his undeflected focus. If there is no, and it accounts, by the way, the absence of it, accounts for a lot of modern rootlessness. If there is no divine origin, then there is no human dignity. If there is no divine return, no divine destiny, then there is no human meaning. And so Jesus, the icon or the image of what the human person should be, knew he came from God, knew he was returning to God. Descent from God and ascent to God. Exit from God, return to God. That's the movement of Holy Scripture. You can get the whole story of the Bible in six words. Descent from God, return to God. That's the movement of Jesus' own life. He descends for us that we might ascend with him to the Father. Sometimes it's easy to get lost in the weeds and the complexities and the diversity of the Bible and not pull back and see the big picture. Jesus knew the big picture profoundly of this origin, this destiny, of all things being placed under him by the Father, he's supremely confident. He knows, the text says, these things. And it is this rooted otherworldliness that underwrites Jesus' engagement in this world. So, the text tells us, while the meal was in progress... He arises. Just as he arose from the right hand of the Father at the incarnation, he who was rich beyond all splendor, he arises. And John is using theologically charged language. This is sort of the, um, the genius of John's gospel. As McLaren said, it is so simple and so profound at the same time. He arises. As he arose at the incarnation, he strips off, John says, his outer clothing as he laid aside or stripped himself of his heavenly glory and dignity. He girds himself, takes up and girds himself with a towel, even as he takes the form of a slave. He pours out, John says, water and washes his disciples' feet, even as he will be poured out for the cleansing of his people. And Peter, true to form, famously objects. It's unfitting. 
It's a reversal of protocol. This is the work for slaves. Right? We might even say Peter puts his foot in his mouth. His dirty foot in his mouth. And Jesus, in verse 8, tells him, unless I wash you, unless I wash you, you have no part in me. It's kind of a shocking word to hear. But the point is this, and this is really the first point about foot washing. We have to let Jesus wash us. We have to let him serve us. Because we're dirty and we get defiled and our feet get splattered during the week and we get dust and crud on us, right? The windows of our soul get foggy and he takes the form of a servant. The whole point of the incarnation is that Jesus becomes poor for you to serve you. Thou who was rich beyond all splendor, all for love's sake becamest poor. And so, you know, Peter's objection has a sort of gloss of piety about it, doesn't it? No, Lord, you're the Lord, I'm the servant. So let me serve you. And Jesus says, enough with that. It's arrogant and self-righteous to assume we're not in need of this service. Jesus did not traverse the infinite distance between God and man and hang lacerated on a cross naked, right, subject to Roman execution because we were in pretty good shape and didn't need desperately to be washed. We serve only because we've first been served. So the first thing, the chief thing, the thing often missed, by the way, when Christians talk about foot washing is not whether we wash one another's feet figuratively or literally. There are some Christian traditions that do this literally. There are others that see it as a figurative command about serving one another. But the first thing is this. We must submit and let Jesus wash our feet. Because he's the Christ, the suffering servant who came to wash us and renew us. Now, of course, it's true. This is an act of service, an example for us to follow. Jesus, you can see this in verse 13, he's called teacher and Lord. He says, you've called me teacher and Lord rightly, because that's what I am. Teacher and Lord. You know, there was no, there's no diminishing of Jesus' dignity in what he did right here. He doesn't lose his status as Lord. Indeed, he puts it on bright display. This is the kind of God God is. And it belongs to our dignity as creatures to imitate him. One of the many resplendent things about Christ is he doesn't stand on his dignity. He finds his dignity in giving it away. If you stand on your dignity and act as if some things are an affront to your dignity or they're beneath your dignity, that is to mangle your dignity. Jesus' dignity is assured precisely because he does not guard it as a fortress. He doesn't police the boundaries of his relationships to figure out who deserves his service and who doesn't, who gave, who took, counting, 
tabulating who did what to whom and who deserves what. He puts his dignity on display by what, from Peter's point of view, looks like effacing his dignity. <coughs> and so he says, if you know, your teacher and your Lord did this, you should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example. You should do as I've done to you. I want to say uh, two things here that have implications for our life together about this foot washing. The first one is what Jesus tells Peter in verse 7. He says to him, you don't realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. Even though the disciples might have some inkling, they don't yet grasp what's happening. I mean, you would think it's pretty straightforward, right? I served you in humility. You should serve one another in humility. But the reason that Peter's not going to get this now is that the full extent and the full realization, right, the full self-emptying required for Jesus to wash us will not be visible until he dies that agonizing death on the cross. And so the foot washing is not just a nice, hey, be nice to one another, try and be kind to one another, try and love one another. It's a sign that points to his execution, first and foremost. And then Jesus says, now that, that cross, that's the pattern our service to one another is to take. And the second thing I want to draw your attention to here is at the end of this foot-washing episode in verse 16. These are very important words in this text. Jesus says, Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Jesus is going to say this again in these same discourses in chapter 16. He's going to remind his servants, Watch what happens to me. Watch what I do. So here in this context, it means this. Jesus is saying, I am the master. I'm going to the cross to die this demeaning, humiliating death of a criminal. And then he says, no servant. Not one single servant, no servant, gets to exempt themselves from following in the way of the cross. So that Jesus' service to us His washing of our feet is demonstrated by his dying, by his giving his life away. And thus the text is calling us to serve one another, to count others more important than ourselves, to displace ourselves by dying and going the way of the cross. And it's clear when Jesus says something like this, no servant is greater than his master. He's saying you can expect this, at times at least, to be excruciating. So there's a real radical edge here. These words are incredibly simple in John 13. But they cut very deep. Right? They are not going to allow our serving one another to be reduced to a kind of charity that leaves our otherwise comfortable existence intact. You will not get to the end of the chapter and have your comfortable existence intact. Notice also 
Who's being served here? Love one another. Not, not strangers, but the family of God. Serving ranks strangers sometimes is much easier than serving people close to you. Serving our brothers and sisters in the family of God. And so, in this text, there's a call to Christian community. There's a one another thing that can't be taken out of the text. Christianity is not possible alone. It isn't possible alone. You know why? You cannot die to yourself, and that's the heart of what the Christian gospel is. You cannot die to yourself by yourself. You can't sit in a room somewhere and decide you're going to die to yourself. Crucifixion requires community. We die in community. Especially in this context, it means tending to the dirty feet. Right? The unpleasant, laborious things of others that we might think are beneath us. Right? We might, we might tend to want to shun the church. There's a lot of that, you know, because those people are hypocrites. Congratulations. Welcome to the human race. We confess that we're hypocrites every week in the liturgy at the front end of it. That's what the confession of sin is for. Yes, the church is full of hypocrites, weak people, right, with all sorts of frailties and failures. But Jesus is saying this. I mean, what do you think Jesus' disciples were? He just washed the feet of the man who was going to betray him. And we've seen these disciples are not the, you know, there's a lot of ignorance. There's a lot of resistance. There's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of selfishness. Right? None of these things are beneath us. To think they are is to think that we are servants who are greater than our master. That's the tragedy of a person who's left the church because the people in the church were bad. Right? And that's nothing less than a repudiation of the cross. No servant is greater than his master. Jesus is washing the feet of cowards and betrayers. This is your calling. Right? And it will require, John Calvin has a wonderful passage on this. He says this will require discomforts, vexations, Weariness, anxiety, but he continues, if we're persuaded that this is a burden laid upon us by God, a singular consolation will arise, Calvin says. And what is that consolation? It is this, he says, that no task will be so sordid and base, provided that you obey your calling in it, that it will not shine and be reckoned precious in the sight of God. Right, right, this is Mother Teresa made tending lepers in the slums of Calcutta the most radiant vocation on the face of the earth. Right, leader of the free world is a footnote to that vocation. And so there's an inversion of our fundamental natural perspectives that evolved in these simple words of Christ. 
And so the second point, and it's very much like the first point, is the new commandment itself. This is in verse 34. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. This has always been somewhat puzzling um, because the command to love one another is not new. That's not the thing that's new here. We heard it read in the book of Leviticus. In the Old Testament lesson, Leviticus 19, you hear these words, love your neighbor as yourself. So in part, Jesus is just citing the Torah. He's just citing Moses. The newness here, the thing that's new, lies in the five astonishing words among the most demanding words ever uttered. Love one another as I have loved you. Now the command is new. Now the command is not a generalized piece of legislation. We are to love one another as Jesus has loved us. Now, I've mentioned this before, probably on a Maundy Thursday. But, quite frankly, this is a preposterous command. Right? We, we have to wonder, can Jesus possibly mean this? I mean, it is an utterly impossible, even inhuman, demand. Like, if you read that and you think, I've got this. I think I could take a run at it. Thanks, Lord. I think the command's within my purview. It's within my realm of capacity. Then you're not listening. You're not listening. This love does not remain or abide. It's not existent in the realm of human social capacity. We're not adequate to it. No matter how naturally kind and loving you might be. Right? So Jesus is not speaking of something we have a natural appetite for. Right? The command cannot be reduced to something like this, be loving. Because that just cuts the last five words off. And the last five words are everything. He's talking about embracing the gospel here. Love one another as I have loved you. And so, there's a sense in which you're not hearing the text until you're divested of all hope. Disheartened. Frankly, even outraged by it. There's a long history of Christian reflection on the kind of virtues required to follow these commands, right? And they're... they're, Aquinas, for example, called them the theological virtues, the virtues of faith, love, and charity. But he understood very clearly that they're not built from the bottom up. They're not just naturally cultivated. They're sent, right, from above. They're poured out. They're given. They're infused repeatedly into your heart. They're supernatural in that sense. So when we hear this command... We hear it as a kind of impossibility. And and when we hear that, then we hear it as a perpetual call to death and resurrection with Christ. To be imitators of that charity poured out on the least, on the lost, on the undeserving. 
So take care. Take care lest we be people who domesticate this text or sentimentalize it or insist that we can manage it. We don't want to be people who are not hearing. And these five words should go off like an explosion. You know, it's often said by folks outside the church. You hear this a lot in a, in a generally secularized age like ours. That we don't, about Christianity, we don't really need all this atonement stuff. And we don't need this judgment. And we don't need this high theology. What we learn from Jesus simply is love. So we can just pluck the love thing out from Jesus and try that. You know what's missing from that? As I, who died an atoning death bearing your judgment, have loved you. It turns out you can't have the love of Jesus without the significance of the as I have loved you. Because the love in view is an atoning, judgment-bearing, cruciform love. It's a love which calls people into the mystery of his death and resurrection. So when you try and abstract this Jesus out and say, I like this, but I don't like that. He says that, that seems mean, but this seems wonderful. You get something else. So to heed just these five words, just those five words, is to acknowledge that we have to let the spirit of the risen Christ restructure our very existence. I'll say that again. To heed just these five words is to acknowledge that we have to let the spirit of the risen Christ restructure our very existence. So, we're either going to hear these words or we're going to ignore them. But the words stand, and don't miss this, they're not an ideal. Right? They're a command. Jesus says this, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. This is what we must do. Now, I'm going to come at this from a slightly different angle now to hope, help us see um, why this command is as far-reaching and as deep as it is. Because among the other things the command requires is it requires a radically new view, a different view, of your brothers and sisters, your neighbors here in the congregation. I think we think we can manage the command because our view of the brethren, the body of Christ, is defective. We tend to see the church as a haphazard, voluntary, social organization. But think of it this way. Put on this mind. All the members of the body of Christ, the people sitting to your left, and to your right, in front of you, behind you, on the other side, all of them, at all times, with all their gifts, with all their gifts, and with all their deficiencies, are placed just as the ascended Lord desires. They're put right there. Even the people that you might wish were not placed right there. They're placed there. And this means that the ones Jesus is calling us to here are given to you by God. They don't just happen to be in the same social group that you're in. A, the brethren are a sovereignly placed gift. They form part of our destiny as the communion of saints. But they're not just gifts. We're not just gifts to one another. Our brethren are a summons. Right? The otherness of a human being staring into your face is a kind of commandment, a summons 
to you from the transcendent God. In that sense, every human interaction is God teaching you. We are obligated to one another, and we can't evade this obligation. God has placed our neighbor there, both as a gift and as a summons. You cannot die to yourself by yourself. You cannot die to yourself by yourself. And there are three ways... I'm going to talk about these briefly here, ways that we evade the command and evade people. The first one I'll call habit, right? There are people we just perpetually avoid. Maybe simply out of habit or routine, and maybe not maliciously. But I don't think that's a justification, beloved. We don't get to pick the subset of brethren that we're to love just as Jesus loved us. That would make a mockery of the command. And it is our natures to do that, is it not? Right? You shall love a subset of the brothers who are very like-minded to you and have much the same interests as you, even as I have loved you. That's the way the command functions in broad swaths of Christendom. But you cannot die to yourself in a circle of hand-picked friends. You cannot die to yourself in a circle of like-minded people. We have habits that have to be broken here. Second way we avoid it is personality. There's people we avoid for not so subtle reasons. Namely, they aren't like us. They rub us the wrong way. We don't like their personalities. They're just not our cup of tea. Or, they're just difficult. Now, we're not difficult. They're difficult. The third thing is what I'll call history. Right? There's people who may have said something or did something once. It aggravated us, and it turns out we have these long historical memories. And thus, there's a kind of suspicion, right? That's how you end up policing the boundaries of all your relationships, So the boundaries aren't porous. There's no vulnerability. right? The person's too needy. They place too many emotional demands on us. Whatever it is. The brothers and sisters in the congregation, the configuration of saints, are placed here without our consent. They're placed here prior to our will. Right? We didn't ask for one another. (laughs) Right? God has placed us. And they're done by the ordering love of God. So if you look at the saints in Christ and all of our weaknesses and all of the mangled spectacle that human beings are in the church, if you look at them as a gift and a summons from God, then you can start to see what this command means. And if we don't view the command this way or the saints this way, we'll never be disturbed enough We'll never be disturbed enough to shake off our natural lethargy and hear these five words. So, you know, I encourage you, start small. Get to know those people you don't know. Talk to someone who's a stranger. Bear their burdens. Pray for them. Refuse to gravitate to the same people. Cross boundaries. Right? This is how this begins. You, You engage in 
small acts of crucifying our natural instincts. Practice hospitality. Practice it with people outside your normal circle. Disrupt your routine. Jesus is nothing if not an upender of conventions. It turns out you can't wash people. You can't change them. You can't transform them by lecturing them. Every parent knows that. You can't wash them by ignoring them. You have to serve them. And to serve them, you have to befriend them. You can't wash feet by yourself. You just end up with two very clean feet. But you cannot wash feet by yourself. You can only wash them in community. So the commandment then stands. Now let's hear it. Love one another as I have loved you. One last thing on this new commandment. And it's, it also goes to the heart of why the commandment is so far-reaching. Notice verse 35. Jesus says this. By this, by this loving of one another, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. This is another one of those places where you think, is he kidding? I mean... It shows you how radical Jesus thinks what he is saying is, does it not? He does not think that the world will know that we're his disciples because the preaching is good, or the music is good, or the church is well-administered, or we have great programs, or all our children are handsome and above average. Right? He does not think that. He says, if you love one another... As I have loved you. If you listen to just this command, he says, everyone, not some people, everyone will know that you are Christ's disciples. Now, what makes Jesus say that? Well, he understands the edge of the command. In other words, the command is a form of world evangelism. Those five words are a form of world evangelism. So radical is the command, Jesus says, you would hardly have to do anything else to convince the world of the truth of the gospel. Right? The early church conquered the Roman Empire largely just by living out those five words. For this ideal of male and female, slave and free, Jew and Greek, rich and poor, living, right, not just showing up at churchy things together, living together in love, sitting together at table was unheard of. It's an explosion in the ancient world. McLaren notes that the Scottish minister I I spoke of earlier, he notes this. He says, it was only that the disciples were obeying the new commandments and a new thing had come into the world a community held together by love and not by geographical accidents or language or the iron fetters of the ruler. A new commandment made a new thing, and the world wondered. You probably know the, the famous report of Tertullian, Tertullian, the second century African church father. Right? He reported, Tertullian did, that the pagans of his day said of Christians, see how they love one another. But what is less known is what Tertullian reported immediately after that. 
After saying, see how they love one another, he said the pagans also said this about the church. See how ready they are to die for one another. That's the last five words right there. That's the as I have loved you part. So here we can see that, yeah, we've probably domesticated this command. Because you've got a lonely, isolated, broken, communityless, and yet hungry world that still thinks it's rational to ignore us. So we have a long way to go. Nevertheless, there's another accent in this command. I want to make sure we hear it before I conclude. Jesus loves us, failures though we are. He has loved us in this manner and washed us as our servant. So notice this, the as, that two-letter word, as, the as he has loved us stands. And first and foremost, you know what that is? It's gospel. It's gospel. Yes, there's a command here, but the command is rooted in the as he has already loved and washed us. And so that love, that washing stands even as we struggle to embrace this love and work it out. Right? Our love is always the echo of his love. So I think this response to Christ's command is able. Jesus says it can. Awaken the world from its slumber. It's not that complicated. It's just exquisitely difficult, yea, even impossible. And not only can it awaken the world, it can give integrity and richness and depth, a, a unity and a reality to everything else we confess. And here, I'll point you as I conclude with, the, with the, uh, the wisdom of the ancient church. When the creed was introduced in the worship services in the ancient Greek liturgy, do you know how the creed was introduced? It was introduced like this. Let us love one another. That with one mind, we may confess Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Trinity, one in essence and undivided. You see, the, the church understood instinctively that if we loved one another, it gave integrity and richness and depth to all that we confess to believe. It's beautiful. Let us love one another, that with one mind we may confess Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Trinity, one in essence and undivided. Amen. Amen.